Welcome to the audio archive of Los Altos Institute's Dune course taught by Liesl Westfall. We apologize for the fact that some episodes are missing and that we may not have got them in quite the correct order. However, these are excellent lectures, excellent classes, and we feel that uh, releasing an incomplete archive is better than continuing to keep them in the vault because there's some excellent teaching here. Thanks again to Liesl Westfall for teaching this course for us. Okay, so today, um, today we're gonna to talk about uh, like gender, gender in Dune, which is actually a really, really, um, it's an important subject, it's an important theme. It's something that I think that Frank Herbert was rather um, prescient about when he when he wrote this we have to consider this is like written in the early 60s um and the the second wave women's movement didn't i mean was starting up in the early 60s but it didn't really hit the mainstream until the 70s so um and i i kind of uh i kind of uh attribute that to the um to the heavy influence of beverly uh, so Beverly Herbert, Frank's um, his wife, his second wife, um, which we all know she had a lot of she had a lot of influence in the book. Um, so, so to get started, so so you know when he sat down to research and write the material for this book, um, early 60s, 1963, it's the first um, publish publishment of the uh, initial serialization. Um, I don't think he ever imagined that he would write some of the most iconic female characters and organizations like kind of in the history of science fiction so so at the time the usual roles for female characters within the genre and you know most other literature they were one-dimensional they were sort of singular and they were always shown in their relation to men so this is a characteristic that one would can observe about women in fiction just in general so uh you know Virginia Woolf in 1929, in uh, a room of one's own, she said, uh, you know, this women are always shown in their, in their relation to men. That was, she said that in 1929, in, uh, in a room of one's own. So, so the men are there to do the work, right? They're there to, like, they're there to do the work, to carry the, to carry the story, and the women are there to support them. So, um, but if there are strong female characters, uh, they tend to be young and attractive, and uh, they're usually um, an isolated exception to the general lot of, of women in that world, in this whatever, whatever world, science fiction world, uh, the author has built. And older women, so women over 40, they practically uh, don't exist as major characters, only as minor characters, so, and usually as mothers and grandmothers. Um, so the idea that women have like independent and um, often conflicting motivations and needs apart from men, uh, even to the point that women can exist and exist exist apart from men, and organize themselves in such a way to do so, it was, and it still is to some degree. Uh, it's a relatively heard of and uh, unheard of in fiction. And in science fiction in the 1960s, it, it, this is almost completely unheard of. I mean, there were exceptions, of course, you know, uh, Charles Perkins Gilman wrote a novel in 1915 called Herland, 
about a society composed exclusively of women who reproduced via um, parthogenesis. Um, but generally, uh, there weren't there weren't leading female characters in science fiction in the 1960s. You know. Um, we also should take into consideration, you know, when we're talking about when the book was written, so we're talking about the context, um, take into consideration the status of women in the US at the time of writing. So for context here, uh, consider that the birth control pill um, was legalized in 1960. So that's only like a couple of years before the book um, was published. And so, so by, by the time at the first initial Serialization of the book in 1963 was published. Um, so three years after the, the pill was legalized, there were 2.3 million prescriptions for the birth control pill out. Um, but even so, at this point in time, uh, most women uh, still couldn't open a bank account in their own name without their husband's permission or signature, nor could women get credit independently. Um, you know, until the 1970s. So like, so in 1963, banks would only allow married women with her husband's consent to get credit and uh, single women were outright refused. So, I mean, let's be honest about the state of women's emancipation and for and full personhood in the US at the time. So women, women weren't allowed to wear pants on the US Senate floor until 1993. That's a year after I graduated from high school. And if you want to hear a funny pants story, um, uh, Adeline and Augusta Van Buren became the first women to travel across the U.S. on two solo motorcycles. Um, the biggest hurdle that they encountered on their journey was being arrested rather frequently for wearing pants. So, you know, at this, so 1963, you know, like it's the beginning of the second wave of, of, uh, of, women's, of the women's liberation movement. But women are still, they're still pretty much at the mercy of, um, you know, male relatives or their husbands or something, or something like that. Okay. So that's, that, that's the, the context of when the, the book was written. So for Frank to have these really strong female characters and female organizations, it was really progressive at the time. And, you know, uh, so let's talk about some of the strong female characters in Dune. Um, we start off with the original trilogy, okay? Um, you know, we've got like, everyone talks about Jessica, right? Jessica, she's the secret daughter of Baron Harkonnen and a Bene Gesserit woman. Her sole purpose uh, in the scheme of the Bene Gesserit order that she was born into is to um, get married and have a child and produce for this for this Kizrach Haderach breeding line. So, you know, lots of people talk about how strong the, the female characters are, um, and they are strong, and, and we do see them change and evolve. But in the initial books, um, they're still very influenced by these uh, by these Joseph Campbell, these Jungian archetypes, which are very conventional, right? So they have these very conventional like. Uh, binary dualism between male and female, <clears throat> anima and the animus. So we do see a lot of strong female characters, but they're in these very traditionally feminine roles. So 
for example, so we've, we've talked about Jessica, right? Jessica is, you know, she, like one could say that it, it's, it's the decisions of Jessica, which impel almost the entire storyline of, of, the, of, of the Dune series. Um, and it really is, you know, she, she went against her, what she was told to do. She was told to have, have, a, have a daughter, she had a son. And that threw, you know, that threw the timeline completely off, right? Paul Muad'Dib, Paul begat Leto II. So one could, one could argue that Jessica was sort of the instigator of everything that happens in the book. Um, uh, Alia, Alia is a great character. She, you know, she's Jessica and Leto's daughter, sister to Paul. Um, she's one of the preborn, so her, you know, consciousness is awakened in utero. Uh, she's always, she has an uphill battle for acceptance, uh, first from the children of the siege and later from her brother and, uh, and from Stilgar and from other male members of her extended family and her network. Um, so, you know, the example um, uh, coming from Dune Messiah, from the chap from a chapter in Dune Messiah, where she is, uh, where she's training with her weapons. Um, she's doing her weapons training and she happens to be in the nude and her brother and Stilgar come in and see her in the state and they exclaim that she must be married off soon. Um, uh, and she, even though she gains a lot of her um, presence in the book from her relationship to her brother, she still holds her own in terms of having a magnetic personality that people follow. So, you know, the St. Alley of the Knife, uh, which is this cult that grows up around her. And it's actually a cult that continues on through um, into God, into uh, God Emperor of Dune. It, it crops up. So people still remember who she is. Um, Chani, you know, for, at first glance, Chani is like, she's kind of a quiet character, but if you actually do a deep read, she's actually really strong, you know. Um, you have to remember that when uh, Jessica came into uh, Stilgar's siege, he offers her the position of Sayadina, so the, the wise woman, um, like the, the basically the, the, the spiritual leader of the group. Um, but it was Chani who was training for that before. And Chani is also the daughter of Liet Kynes, who is the Imperial Planetologist, who is the son of Pardo Kynes, um, the senior, senior Kynes. And again, he's the Imperial Planetologist. And if you're, you know, if, if you're an Imperial Planetologist, you come from, you do come from some, you know, quote unquote, good stock, one could say. So Chani is herself, and when she meets Paul, like in the initial meeting of Paul between Paul and Jessica, when they come across, when they come onto um, the, their group of Fremen, uh, you know, she laughs at him, right? She says like, you know, you're so loud, right? You know, you're not quiet at all, right? So Chani is strong as well. And we also know how strong Chani is and how much Paul comes to rely on her because he actually says, um, you know, like, stay with me. You're, you're the strong one. He actually comes out and says, like, explicitly says that. Can't remember which book, but he comes out and explicitly says that. Um, so, and another female character in the first, in the first trilogy is like the Shadal Mapes. You know, the Shadal in the Fremen language means um, water dipper. So, uh, meaning a person who is in charge of measuring and distributing the Sitch's most important resource, water. So, this is a highly trusted position. Again, it's another female. Um, Irulan, 
Irland, would I call her, she's, she is strong because she's the one who's writing the history of Paul Muad'Dib throughout the entire um, book of Dune. You know, the, uh, the epigrams at the beginning of, of, of every chapter is uh, something written by, by Irland. So her voice throughout the entire book is, is also very prominent. Um, Reverend Mother H Helen Gaius Moheyam, you love her and you hate her, but she is a very strong character throughout the first book. You know, she's, she acts as the emperor's truth sayer. Um, she has tons of power still over Jessica, even though Jessica is, is married and she, well not married, but she's, um, you know, official consort concubine to a duke and she has all the power and the social status and the power associated with that. She's still terrified of this woman. And so is Paul because of that. Um, uh, the strong female characters in the siege. So we have Hera. Hera is, you know, Hera was the, um, the wife of Janus, the man that Paul kills. And uh, Paul eventually takes her on as a servant. Like he has the choice to take her on as a servant or as um, a partner, but he takes her on as a servant. But Hera's very strong, you know, Hera's, she, she's the one person in the siege who can, who can tell off Jessica, right? And she does, you know, she does it in her own, in her own you know, womanly kind of way by, by making a comment on how dirty her carpets are. But she, she does, she, she, she will tell off Jessica. And she's also the person who, who pretty much will raises Alia. So Hera's also this very strong character. And as you know, as we go through that, the first initial trilogy, you know, uh, and we get to uh, Children of Dune, you know, uh, not a lot of people talk about Ghanima. And Ghanima is, you know, of course, is, is Paul's daughter and twin to Leto II, who will eventually become God Emperor. And, you know, she has this quiet strength to her, right? But she's still strong. She kills one of the tigers. She's still a very strong woman. Um, and when we talk about Fremen women, so there's a, there's a quote from Dune, you know, page 386. Uh, the siege is a lonely place without our men. It's a place of work. We labor in the factories and the potting rooms. There are weapons to be made, poles to plant that we may forecast the weather, spice to collect for the bribes. There are dunes to be planted to make them grow and to anchor them. There are fabrics and rugs to make, fuel cells to charge. There are children to train, but the tribe's strength may never be lost. So, you know, here we have these strong women who are pretty much well running all aspects of the siege, um, except for probably security. That's up to the men. Um, but, you know, as we progress through the timeline, through the Dune books themselves, we see these female characters. Uh, Herbert is now writing female characters that are moving. Um, oops, Olympia's coming back in. That are moving way beyond the confines of this Joseph Campbell, Jungian, these female archetypes and these conventional science fiction characters. So. They're moving way beyond, which is what I, I, I love, which is why I, I, I love the, I, I love the, the later books. Um, we're seeing uh, more older women and we're seeing older women who are seen as wise and powerful and in control of the situation, 
for example, there's a, a scene between uh, Antioch and Lucille in God Emperor of Dune, where an Antioch is the older one and uh, Lucille tries to, she tries to sort of own this, the, the, uh, the situation, but Antioch puts her down. So, uh, you know, so, and all of the characters, you know, past God Emperor of Dune. So in Heretics of Dune and in Chapter House, we see what the majority of the Reverend Mother characters, they are older uh, and they're powerful and they're in control. So we don't really see, a, you don't see a lot of that in science fiction, like older women in those kinds of positions. Um, so again, more strong female characters. In God Emperor of Dune, you've got Siona. You know, it, it's it's Siona who is going to be um, the basis for, um, you know, future humans to be um, exempt from prescience. You know, the entire line from Siona, those are the humans who the prescient seekers and people who have the powers of prescience will not be able to see. They'll be, they'll be invisible. So she's extremely important to um, the entire future um, past God Emperor. Um, and how I was talking previously about how uh, in uh, Heretics of Dune and in Chapter House Dune, where we've got uh, these really fleshed out three-dimensional uh, Bene Gesserit characters, you know, you've got Mother Superior Teraza in Heretics of Dune. And here we have someone who is, uh, you know, she's calculating, she's strong, She's able to make life, life and death, death decisions. Um, she can, she has the ability to be able to write people off, you know, like if they have to for, for this, for this grand scheme, you know, Terraza's design. Um, so she can be cold hearted, but someone who is, you know, trying to fight off like these honored matries as much as um, the Bene Gesserit are like you have, like in your plans, you, you have to be cold hearted. And then there's, uh, of course, Shiana, Shiana in, uh, in Heretics, you know, at eight years old, she is, uh, she's taken in by the priests. And by the time she's 12, she already has control of, she already has like a natural control of her voice. She has power over the priests in terms of being able to, um, be able to manipulate them uh, through, through like, religion and and philosophy um you know you've got uh reverend mother darwi odrade my favorite character you know she's she's got you know she's so three-dimensional right you just you know you know so much of her motivation so much of her inner voice right like there's this concept of sea child right like you know who like what motivates her and you don't see a lot of that at all in science fiction from that time period. Uh, Reverend Mother Blonda, Reverend Mother Tamalane, you know, uh, like Rebecca, Marbella, you've got these, these really great, um, strong, older female characters. Um, yeah. Uh, another thing that, uh, you know, like strong female characters nowadays, you know, like that, that's a trope that it's fairly, you know, it's fairly uh, every day, but at the time it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty revolutionary. Um, another really revolutionary aspect of Dune, um, 
contextually, 1960s, is the concept of this female only, these institutions, right? You don't see in any other uh, science fiction at the time, or even before that, you don't see um, the Dune series, it's exceptional um, for its time and for now, not only because of the large amount of strong female characters that are fully engaged in the narrative and central to the storyline, but also because it has exclusively female-only institutions. Uh, so what are some of these? So I guess the most important female-only institution uh, is the Bene Gesserit. You know, so at a surface level, the Bene Gesserit, they appear to be somewhat of a religious order, similar to that of medieval uh, monastic nuns, you know, similarities to the Christian uh, female service orders, like the similarities like the titles, you know, Reverend Mother, Mother Superior, Acolytes, Chapter House being used um, for uh, the title of one of their planets. Chapter House is a building used for meetings associated with the monastery, clothing. Um, they are committed followers of an order uh, that provides services to communities that they serve. Um, some of these services include like schooling of great houses. Uh, they also, um, so, but, but to understand the Bene Gesserit and their place, uh, um, they're able to manipulate for their own purposes and mainly for the survival of the Bene Gesserit within um, the heavily patriarchal old imperium. Um, so we have to we have to consider like so, like you know, how do they function, and what larger context do they function in? When we have to think when we think about that, we want to go back to the Bene Gesserit origins. So what are the origins of the Bene Gesserit? So uh, before the Butlerian Jihad, there existed uh, women in scattered communities who were considered what he calls sorceresses. So these are the proto-Bene Gesserit sorceresses who, um, whose powers were real. This is a quote from the book. Uh, they go back to the time of the Butlerian Jihad, which was 90 generations before the present day in the initial Dune book, um, during which time, so the Butlerian Jihad, during which time it was two, gener it was two generations of conflict during the, the Butlerian Jihad, this sort of proto-Bene uh, Gesserit uh, organization, um, they were concerned with um, banding up and consolidating their hold on these, on, this, on these sorceresses, right? So that comes from the first book. They were exploring subtle narcotics. They were developing their Pranabindu training. They were assembling the Azar book. The Azar book is a uh, bibliographic marvel that preserves the great secrets of the ancient faiths. And they produced, from there, they produced the Missionary Protectiva and the Bene Gesserit Coda. So things like the Litany Against Fear. Um, but at this time of consolidation, so they've consolidated up all these sort of like feminine powers like, and, and, and groups. Um, the Lonsrod, so the great, the system of great houses of the of rigid class structure, it had already been in place for 2000 years. So, you know, they're this nascent female only organization that um, was created 
during, uh, you know, you know, during a very heavily patriarchal, larger culture. Um, so the world that this new secret order of women have to exist and thrive in is it's one of very few options for women. Um, and because of this, it just kind of makes sense that the Bene Gesserit focus on improving um, like their, their outward um, purpose is focusing on improving the social and cultural education of uh, great house young ladies. This is their marketable service. Um, so that's, that's, their, that's their public facing role. So it's, it's their, their public facing role is very, um, is one that's very traditionally that of a female marriage and education power broker. So it's conventional, right? It's important in the private domestic sphere, but really it's only of a minor concern in the overall public sphere. Um, uh, so in terms of the, uh, the yeah, sorry, Olivia. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, it's just that Jonathan was oh. asking if yeah. you could let him in. Sorry. Hi, Jonathan. I didn't see you there. Okay. okay. Thank you. There you go. All right. Um, so where did I leave off? Oh, the technological ethos of the Bene Gesserit. So they tend to shy away from it. They prefer uh, more natural forms. This is a hangover from the Butlerian Jihad and uh, its reluctance towards machines. Um, they also have a sense of the, the need to maintain as much independence as possible. So they reluctantly integrate technology only when it's deemed absolutely necessary, like the adoption of the axolotl technology in Chapter House. Uh, their entire organization is founded on a continuum of knowledge based on shared memories passed down between Reverend Mothers throughout the ages since the beginning of the spice agony. So the very fabric of Bene Gesserit society is built on the spice and the shared memories um, held uh, between the generations of Reverend Mothers and just between Reverend Mothers themselves right, within the organization. Um, now the significance of, uh, of these shared, of these past shared female memories, um, these are really, this is a, this trope is actually in terms of, uh, my argument that, uh, Dune actually is a very feminist text is, uh, this trope is very important because you have to consider that in a patriarchy, um, you know, we're, we're like, you know, all like. The institutions are male-centered, um, you know, uh, the cultural forms are male-centered. So things like inheritance, you know, who can, who can take over a position, who can be in power, who, who has access to leadership. Um, so in a patriarchy, knowledge is very heavily controlled. And uh, women, except for like a few elite, they don't have access to education and reading and that kind of stuff. So this idea where, um, where there's this unbroken line of knowledge through, the, through memory uh, that is shared and passed down for you know, 90, whatever, how many generations it is that when they uh, introduced like the spice agony, um, this is very significant, right? Like, because it's, because it, it, it takes away from 
how patriarchal institutions uh, tend to isolate women in order to um, uh, uh, keep them powerless. Uh, <clears throat> so, okay, yeah, so, you know, patriarchy is like there's no standalone culture for women because women are always attached to a man. So you have, you have, if you have this organization, um, which is completely built around uh, this unbroken line of memories for thousands of years, um, you have a culture of women. So, and I mean, just imagine, just imagine having access to, uh, you know, whether a maternal line, a paternal line, just, just, just an unbroken line of shared memory from hundreds, if not thousands of individuals. You know, you've got many different experiences um, to consult when you're making decisions. Uh, so, you know, at the time of Dune, uh, the Bene Gesserits, their education and training, um, they pre it prepares women to have a high degree of embodied agency. Uh, basically, they have the ability to control one's body and life and actively shape the world. So their skills in muscle and nerve control give them almost um, complete control over their bodily functions. Um, you know, they can meaning they can control reproduction. They can neutralize poisons. Um, they can control how uh, they can control their inner like biochemical um, uh, workings in order to slow down their aging process. And, and because of their skills, they excel at unarmed combat, you know, among other things. So their heightened perception enables them to control others with their voice, assess dangerous situations and play politics very cleverly. Um, you know, it just highlights to us just how important it is for women to have control over their bodies, our bodies, which, you know, this was a key concern of the women's liberation movement in the 1960s and the 1970s. Um, so the Bene Gesserit, they're also, uh, in my opinion, the strongest, what I would call the term I just kind of made up, uh, the institutional character. They're the strongest institutional character. So they're not like an individual person. They're, 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 they're an institution. Um, they're the strongest institutional character throughout the books. And so they evolve from, from their niche political role and you know these and basic and basically sort of negative, suspicious um, uh, intentions by the general public. These are like they call them witches. So they evolve from this into uh, the dominant political organizing force within the Imperium. You know, like in Heretics of Dune, Miles Tegg, uh, who is like supreme basher, like general. You know, he's this big high general. He explicitly recognizes. Um, the Bene Gesserit's moral authority to govern. So, you know, they may have started out as, as these, you know, these very Jungian Campbell archetypes, strong, strong in their archetype, but still an archetype, right? Still a conventional female archetype. And they evolve, like they completely evolve into, away from that. So like they break these, they break these molds, this mold of these Jungian archetypes, which, you know, is even, is even more prescient for the time, you know, from, this, from the time that these, these books were written. 
the 60s into the early 80s. So I have a question for everybody. Um, the question, my question is, are the Bene Gesserit the true heroes of moral purpose within the Imperium? Or are they anti-feminist ultra collaborators within the patriarchal system? Anyone have any thoughts on that? Well, I know that my fiance had some thoughts about that when I was describing the books and the content of the course to her. Uh, can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, so I'm on the street. Um, her, her issue was that despite being, you know, a female organization, the Bene Gesserit appear to be devoted to generating um, Did we lose Jonathan? Sorry, sorry. It's okay. Um, their, their project is generating the ultimate man. Their project for having the ultimate man is to gain supreme political power. Yeah. It's a very male goal. <laughs> and it's, it, it's not so peculiar that a female organization would want to have that kind of overt power. Right. Because it's this. Um, Jonathan, you still there? Oh, sorry, actually. Um, her point was that it's Overt power of this kind is a very male goal. Right. And villages would already have all the influence and all the reproductive opportunities for themselves that they want. There isn't really a good reason to have the Quizat Padarak on the imperial throne so that he can have a harem and, and, and use all this power in a way that would not truly satisfy a male ego, but which would achieve goals that are not clear for a female organization or for females. Right. It's always as if they started as a male organization, established their goals, and then got just so taken over by women who carried it on through some sort of organizational inertia. <laughs> yeah, and actually that is one of the, um, that's one of the criticisms that a lot of people have of Dune, like when they when they just read the first trilogy, is that is that they you know, and that's why I I asked like, do you see the Bene Gesserit as like these like ultra collaborators within the patriarchal system? Like, why do they want to, um, what why do they want to seek or seize power in a very patriarchal way? Right, like like a matriarchy isn't just like a female mirror of a patriarchy, right? Um, but I think if you continue to read on through the books, like, and, and that's actually, I think the reason why uh, Leto, you know, like the tyrant, the God emperor, I think that's why he takes their breeding program away from them because, because, they, because they don't have a moral purpose, right? They, they've been so obsessed with this because you have to consider that 
The Kwisatz Haderach um, was, was a 90 generation breeding program, right? At the time of the of the original book. And it has been 90 generations since the Butlaterian Jihad. So this, is, this has been almost like, like the main purpose of the Bene Gesserit since the beginning, since they consolidated all those sorceresses after the Butlerian Jihad, it's been almost their main purpose is to create this Kazash Hara. And, and, and they kind of like, like, they sort of got like overly obsessed with it. And, and I think that's why Leto takes their breeding program away from them. Because he's like, look, you guys have got to find some moral purpose beyond creating a Kwisatz Haderach. Because guess what? We did it. It failed. Move on. Find something else. You know, so he takes their breeding program away from them for 3,500 years. I mean, he initially takes away because he wants all that information to create the Siona type, right? He wants to create these people who are invisible from prescience, right? So he needs to have so, and the Bene Gesserit have the best breeding program. I mean, Leto has one in his head, but he takes it away from them. And it's, that is, that is their opportunity to find their moral purpose. And I think they do, you know, I, I think they do actually, by the time we get to heretics, uh, Miles Tagg, right? Like he's like this, the general of like the, the sisterhood's army. He actually explicitly says like, they're the moral force within the universe. You know, and in Heretics, when when Darwi uh, 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 goes, when she, when she discovers the old horde um, of the of, of Leto's, like you know, when the uh, when like the worm, you know, like the like the Tur and Waff and Shiana, and uh, you know, they, they they get dumped. This worm dumps them at the front of that um, the horde, Leto's ancient horde, and he says to the Bene Gesserit, "I bequeath my loneliness." That's essentially Leto saying, like, you have the capability of being the of being the overall moral organizing force in the old Imperium. So. Um, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you, Jonathan. In the, in the first few books, um, you know, they, they are, why, why are they, um, like, why are they going after power in this very male kind of way? Why? Right? Like, and that's why I think, you know, and that's why I talk about how they evolved, right? That's the, they evolved as an institutional character, because they do. In the, in the first few books, they're this, you know, this, this, they're, you know, obsessed with his Krizach Haderach, they're obsessed with, you know, breeding and eugenics. I mean, they're still obsessed with breeding and eugenics by the end, but they've got a, they've got, they've, they've got their moral purpose now. They've got a, they've got more moral purpose than they had in the first few books. Does that make sense? Yes. Also, yeah. I have to tell you, as, <laughs> As a geneticist, if you spend 90 years on a breeding program, you are doing something wrong. It's 90 generations? Yeah, it should not take you 90 generations to get anything. Yeah, well, that, that's another thing about, about the books being written in the 1960s is that they're like the lack of, of knowledge of, of genetics is, is, is pretty clear. It's, it's, it's cute now, right? So. Yeah, agreed. Agree. Yeah, it shouldn't take 90 generations. It really shouldn't. Especially if you have, if you have access 
to, um, well, consider also, well, here's something to consider. It might take 90 generations if you, if you only have that, because remember, they're trying to create like the supreme being, like, a, but they're trying to create the supreme being amongst a very sort of small gene pool, right? A gene pool of who is of leadership and royalty within the Falfrelesh system, right? So within these great houses. So maybe out of a really small gene pool, it takes yeah. generations. I don't well, know. no, actually, the, the smaller your gene pool, the faster it goes. Yeah. If the thing isn't in the gene pool to begin with, right. then, 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 you, then you're not ever going to get it. Like you're not, you're not going to amplify it. Yeah, you're not going to. You, you have to. You have to get the mutations you want in there in the first place. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, maybe, maybe maybe that's how they introduce the the different these new attributes into this really shallow gene puddle is through these really subtle once a generation. You know, they have someone like Jessica. You know, maybe that's why they have to do it so slowly. I'm not sure, but that's a uh, good point. No, no, no. I don't. The nobility's gene puddle isn't shallower than anyone else's. It's just peculiar to them. Yeah. And it's a pretty outbred nobility when you look at it. Huh? I mean, it's probably better than the one we have now. Right? Agreed. So, 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 have we? Does anyone else have any um, sort of contributions to the question of are the Bene Gesserit the true, the true heroes of moral purpose within the Imperium, or are they anti-feminist ultra collaborators within a patriarchal system? <laughs> Or are they both? <laughs> yeah, hi, Olympia. Um, well, there is something that I, I find very interesting and is, um, maybe I'm wrong, but it's always seemed to me interesting how even though they do have uh, lots of power over their bodies and they can, um, they, they have uh, great power as an institution, um, the way I perceive them is like, slaves to the order like they don't have any purpose um of their own jessica for instance she uh, the fact that she um decided to have a normal normal life uh, with her husband or the fact that she decided not to obey um when she had paul well that was seen as a weakness so the fact that she doesn't have she or Odrade or any other um, acolyte or woman in the in the order, the fact that they don't have that sort of liberties and that um, the fact that each decision they must um, make um, has to uh, correspond to the order. That's something that um, always struck me as, you know, you, and I think we, we actually see that um, more clearly in the um, in chapter house when we see yeah. the kind of reflections that Darwi has about her life about totally. how she envies um, other acolytes who don't have the sort of responsibilities that she has yeah yeah and how she draws on her memories of sea child yeah you know so she clearly isn't happy um, yeah. leading the life that she she's leading yeah but she knows that like you know, like, like she's constantly conflicted, right? She has like these yeah. her own independent, like, like wants and needs, but then she has this, like, she's, 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 she's totally committed to, to the sisterhood through being a reverend mother yes. through the spice agony, 
Yeah. And I, I think we also see that through Marbella um, and how she changes um, where she becomes, I mean, I, I don't think she was happy either being a, an honored mattress, matter, <laughs> but um, the fact that she has to give up her life with Duncan and um, become something completely different. I mean, I think the, the change is positive because she's, she seems to be happier, but in the end, she, she doesn't have any sort of agency over her own life. Right. I, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> I actually think that it's been written like that, that both the Mirbella character and especially the Odraid character have been written so conflicted that you, you know, that, that every person, whether they're man or a woman, um, sees that 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 uh, that eternal essential conflict of that every person experiences that that's of their own wants and needs and motivations and their responsibilities to whatever group that they belong to whether it's their family or their community or their country or whatever it may be yeah. exactly even even the way motherhood is depicted i think there's a moment where marbella um thinks that she she wants to see her children because she hasn't seen them in a long time and yeah. she can't even do that so or the way um miles um, mother raised him it was yeah. or, or jessica training paul the, the fact that you can't even raise your child as you wish to to raise him is is a bit strange yeah yeah <laughs> It's that whole concept of like obligation, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, that's a, and, and that's actually that's actually I actually really like that aspect of that because that whole concept of the of of internal conflict, of personal internal conflict over one's own wants and desires versus one's obligations. That's a very, mm -hmm. that's a very adult thing, right? That's a very, that's, that's a very adult thing. It's like, you know, when women characters, they can tend to really be infantilized. Oh, right. So, so when, when they suffer from these like really adult conflicts, I, I consider that to be a fully fleshed, fully adult female character. Like that's, that's great. Cause mm -hmm. a lot of character, a lot of female characters are really one dimensional. They're, they're infantilized, right? They don't have these, inner conflicts right they just seem to be they just seem to have this really shallow narrative that informs them and that's right. that's, that's why I, that's one of the reasons i love the later books because the mm -hmm. female characters are just they're so fleshed out right like like you get to know them right you almost feel yeah. like yeah yeah i like that too yeah so anyone else does anyone else have any like any uh, response to my question of, are they true heroes or are they ultra collaborators? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think the choice is between those two. Like, I, I don't think ultra collaborators is, I don't think they're in the moral leadership, but I think ultra collaborators inclines to me to mean you do something nasty to people. Ah. And um, that's to me what a collaborator is. Right. 
you know, in order to worship you, I will hurt everybody else. And yep. I never got that impression. Although, as I say, I didn't understand much of the first reading. But um, collaboration is, um, you know, I think the problem is this evening I was watching a whole lot of things on the Nazis. Oh. When I'm thinking of collaboration, yeah, I'm thinking of all these men saying, I just had to do what I was told. Right. Yeah. And um, I don't think that they were like that. But, you know, yeah. what, do you, what yeah. do you think about that as a... Um, I, no, I agree with you. I, I wouldn't necessarily call them ultra collaborators. I mean, I, I just, I, I use that term because I read it in this, this feminist Dune criticism article. And I just love that term, ultra collaborators. Um, but I do think that, that the, the Bene Gesserit of like the first few books, um, you know, like sort of like pre, pre-evolution, like pre-God Emperor time evolution, um, I do see a lot of parallels with them and like first wave feminism, which was pretty much um, a feminism that was limited to women of higher socioeconomic standing. Yes. You know, like, like today in sort of in today's, in, in today's parlance, we would call it, um, you know, white, white feminism. But I don't agree with that term because I think that's really, I, I don't like, I don't like reductive comments on race, but I, I do think that the Bene Gesserit do reflect the, the initial Bene Gesserit do reflect that sort of high socioeconomic status, um, first wave feminism, feminism for sure. For sure. I do. Well, I, you, see, I you see a lot of movements anywhere. It's generally people in the higher. Of course. Uh, higher echelon. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't see trailer park ladies out there too often. No. Because no. they're busy trying to find the money to feed their children. That's right. That's right. And, you know, and, and you see this reflected in, in these, in these different Bene these different iterations of the Bene Gesserit, you know, the, the first iteration of the Bene Gesserit, they're very elitist, right? They only take mm -hmm. from, from the ranks of the great houses, mm -hmm. right? They only breed from the ranks of the great houses. Mm -hmm. Whereas in, if you look at like the later iterations of the Bene Gesserit in say um, Heretics of Dune, um, you know, like the, the character of Shiana, right? Shiana came from a super, super poor uh, pioneer Fremen village that um, the Bene Gesserit had, you know, she, she does have Siona's blood in her. Shiana has the blood of Siona but then again, half the people in the old Imperium at, by this point had the blood of Siona, right? So, but Shiana comes from like, like the poorest of poor on Arrakis and the Bene Gesserit see her like latent inherent abilities and they pluck her to train her. So you see this difference, right? Between the first iterations of the Bene Gesserit, they only take their accolades from the high class. Whereas in, in the later iterations, they look at all different classes and they um, assess their accolades for their for, for their for their ability, not for, not from what class that they take them from. And Shiana is the perfect example of that because she literally 
comes from like a poor, poor pioneer village, which is so poor and so marginal that it's been set up outside of the wall and it gets eaten up by the worm. That's why Shiana, you know, is able to show her power at that time because, you know, her village gets eaten up. That's just how poor and marginal Shiana's family is. So there's a, there's a difference. There's, there's, a, there's one difference with the Bene Gesserit from their earlier iterations to their later iterations. So, um, ooh, 6.30. So other female-only institutions. Bene Gesserit aren't just the only female institution in Dune. In fact, one could say, you know, if you, if you consider the entire six books, it's probably more about women than it is about guys, but no, we'll go there. Um, another female institution are the fish speakers. So the fish speakers, they're this all-female army. They're founded by the, the tyrant god emperor Leto II during his 3,500 year reign over the Imperium. Um, the basic nature of this fish speaker army is one of a, like a religious ritual between Leto and these women who are worshiper supplicant, but they're an army. Um, the purpose is to enforce Leto's rule all over every planet on the empire, um, including on Bene Gesserit planets and on Ixian planets and on Telaxu planets and on Gil planets. So during the time, during the 3,500 years that Leto was in power, which is a long time, you consider like 3,500 years, consider some random um, leader in Egypt, right? Some, some pharaoh in Egypt becoming the leader of society and he is still leader today and has been leader for 3,500 years. Like, like just, just getting your head around that, that's a long time. So, you know, these fish speakers, there are, there are probably, I would say in the millions they're in the millions and they're on every single planet in the Imperium. And what uh, Leto says about the fish speakers is, you know, he has, he has, Leto himself is, he has some interesting ideas about what men and women do. Um, he says, loyalty in a male army fastens upon the army itself rather than onto the civilization which fosters the army. Loyalty in a female army fastens onto the leader. Uh, he also goes on to say, this is all the stuff Leto has, Leto II has said about women and female armies. Men are susceptible to class fixations. They create layered societies. The layered society is, the, is an ultimate invitation to violence. It does not fall apart, it explodes. So of course, um, uh, Duncan asks him, women never do this? Not unless they are almost completely male dominated or locked into a male role model. The sexes can't be that different, Duncan says, but they are. Women make common cause based on their sex, a cause which transcends class and caste. That is why I let my women hold the reins. This is everything that Leto is saying in God Emperor of Doom. So my Ori, my Huri, that's, you know, they, they tame the males. It is domestication, a thing females know from eons of necessity. To tame, Leto said, to fit into some orderly survival pattern. Women learned it at the hands of men. Now men learn it at the hands of women. So I think that's an interesting take on a female army. And it's an interesting take because when we find out where the fish speakers go in terms of 
like what they evolve into or de-evolve into, it all depends. Um, it's an interesting take. So after the death of Leto II, the fish speaker organization, um, they, they follow Siona and Duncan, but they ultimately fall into factional bickering, wasting the hordes of spice left of them to manage. And most of them are eventually driven out of the old core imperium into the scattering that follows the famine times. And as we know, the uh, fish speakers that get driven out of the old imperium in the scattering, past the old, past the, the boundaries of the, of the Imperium, they hook up, meet up with uh, failed Reverend Mothers, and they become the Honored Matries, or Matries. So the Honored Matries, they're a group, an organization, they're composed entirely of women, so like the Bene Gesserit, um, but the, unlike the Bene Gesserit, they actively and explicitly seek power. So the Bene Gesserit were seeking power, they were through well, prior, um, during uh, in the initial pre pre Leto the Second um, universe, the universe of Paul Muad'Dib, they were seeking power through um, being able to control someone. So it it was an explicit seeking of power, but it was still um, there. Still was a veil kind of covered you know over it, right? It wasn't them in power. It was them controlling someone in power. The Kisash Hadarak, he was the official person supposed to be in power, and they were supposed to control from behind. So. The honored matries, they actively and explicitly seek power and through total submission, domination and extreme violence. Um, they first appear in Heretics of Dune as those among the people returning to the old Imperium from the scattering. Um, and as I said before, uh, their, their origins are kind of vague but we eventually piece together that um, they formed from fish speakers and from failed reverend mothers who went out into the scattering as well. Um, yeah, you know, there's one thing that, that keeps getting brought up. It's in Heretics or is it in Chapter? It's in both actually. And it's Darwi, it's, it's Darwi Audrey keeps saying, uh, rot spreads from the core. And this is her way of acknowledging that they're, even though the Bene Gesserit have trained, uh, has sorry, have changed quite a lot since their, uh, since their pre-tyrant days, um, they uh, they still are they're still sort of a responsible for the way that the um, honored matries are because you have to remember if the honored matries are uh, the result of fish speakers and failed reverend mothers in the scattering um, it's that whole that rot you know rot spreads outward right like our like it's 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 Darby recognizing that the Bene Gesserit still have aspects of themselves that if you take it to its logical conclusion, you get honored matrix, right? And we see this in, we see this particularly in heretics where the, we see the comparisons between, um, you know, the sexual imprinter Lucilla, who's a Bene Gesserit and uh, Mirbella, or, or other various honor matrices. Like they're really in terms of what they actually do in terms of their, their, their sexual powers, there's not a lot of difference, right? So this concept of the, like rot spreads outward from the core is Dory Audrad admitting that, yeah, like the way that the Bene Gesserit were previously, you mix that with the sort of 
matriarchal superiority complex that the fish speakers um, kind of evolved over 3,500 years, uh, you're going to get honored matries. So that's, that's another, that's, that's our last female institution. Okay. Oh goodness. It's 22. Okay. I'm going to finish. I'm going to finish. I thought this wasn't going to go, go on this long, but so, uh, so Dune as criticism of patriarchy and patriarchal institutions. So feminist writing is not always just about strong female characters. Feminist writing is also about showing um, the negative aspects of patriarchy, uh, which I think the Dune series does plenty. Um, you know, one could argue that the entire premise of the book is a critical satire against both like, uh, you know, neo-feudal uh, and messianic impulses um, is, is a criticism of patriarchy. Um, but, so you keep this in mind, um, I, I personally, my, my personal favorite uh, criticism of a patriarchal institution um, of, the, of the book is uh, through the concept of the Bene Tleilax, so the Tleilaxu. Um, the Tleilaxu, they're a secretive closed society that is fundamentally like made up. Um, it, it, it's, it's the fundamental basis of it is so patriarchal that they have pretty much well almost completely eliminated women from their society, save for you know some some sessile female bodies that act as like you know these reproductive like, like these very functional axolotl reproductive tanks. So women have been women have been basically eliminated from their society entirely. Um, and that stands in stark contrast to the Bene Gesserit. So I think the Tilaxu serve as this, this sort of running motif of, it's of, of where a patriarchal society could potentially like, you know, like what, like the end result of like a heavily, heavily patriarchal society where women are, where women become increasingly more and more isolated and seen just for their reproductive functions. You see that really in the Tilaxu. So my final question is, the ultimate question remains, is Dune and the Dune series a feminist book? And I, I would say my answer is of course, yes. So first off, we see fully fleshed out three-dimensional female characters that really do share equal space, if not more. Eventually they get we get you know, more along the line, they actually share more than equal space in this universe and the books. Um, also, ultimately it's a feminist text because it sees the very distant future of humanity. You know, even though humanity is amongst the stars and they're away from earth and all the technology that is entailed in getting us to this level of like, you know, post earth galactic presence, like, so even 10,000 years in the future and far away in another, in, you know, in another galaxy, the majority of people are still being um, born naturally. So from a woman. Um, and why do I consider this feminist? Uh, just simply because I, you know, you know, a fully, a fully technological the, the, because of the Tilaxu. The Tilaxu provide a stark contrast of what a human culture could do in terms of a fully technological reproductive strategy. 
that's something I'm going to talk more about on Tuesday. Um, but I think that I, I think that's very feminist is like, is, is a, is a non fully, fully, uh, technological reproductive strategy. I also consider it, um, a feminist text because, uh, Herbert posits the ultimate radical materialist feminist scenario. And that is what if women have had mastered the two biological realities of our embodied existence. And that is one, complete independent control over reproductive capabilities, right? No one has ever, and I don't think since Dune, well, maybe they have, but they've stolen it from Frank Herbert, but no one before that said, hey, what if we built this universe where the priors are that women have a complete independent control over their reproductive capabilities so they can choose when and or, or when not to get pregnant and choose the sex of the child that they will get pregnant with if they so choose. And then two is um, overcoming our sexually dimorphic disadvantage of, you know, like a slightly smaller size through developing advanced physical combat skills, voice control, superior observational skills. Um, like really, like if you, took, if you took those two main biological vulnerabilities and gave women complete control over them. So really like that really is like almost the ultimate uh, leveling of the playing field one might say, um, what would women do with that? What could women do with that? And that's why, that, and that's why I love the, the Bene Gesserit. That's why I love what Frank has done by saying they can control all their own reproduction and they can hold their own when it comes to, um, to protecting themselves from physical violence. So I do, I do think it is, I do think that Dune is a feminist text and those are the reasons why. Well, from what I understand of it, which I don't quite get, <laughs> I'm admitting I don't, um, I got the impression it was feminist also, but I also got the effect that it was talked about reproduction an awful lot. Yes. And that brings us into the modern world where, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's mostly women that are against abortion. Yeah. And it doesn't make sense to me. Like I can see where men say, you're killing my sperm. And basically that's what they're saying. You're killing my sperm. Um, but it, it, I find it mind boggling that it's mostly women that want to stop uh, even early abortions. And I don't find that feminist. Um, mind you, they think they're talking about murder, but they're carrying guns. So <laughs> yeah, I, I know exactly the cohort of the type of woman that who you're referring to. Yes. And I have been I have been really, really trying to 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 understand that type that 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 mindset because it is held by such a large amount of people, of women because there is a considerable number of women who hold that, who, you know, 
who, who fit into that, that, that cup, you know what I mean? Who fit into that, that category. And what um, they are willing to do is getting worse and worse. Like apparently some state in the United States now says that ordinary citizens can check to see whether a woman has a fetal heartbeat. I mean, you know, I have a big tummy. I don't want to go out on the street and have somebody say, wait a minute, I'm going to put a stethoscope on your tummy. And see if you're pregnant. You know, it, it just, and the point is they're all in favor of guns. And I don't see that in, in Dune, but I do see an awful lot of talk about reproduction. Yeah. Reproduction, I mean, I, that, that this is more in terms of like topical, this is more what I'm going to be talking about on Tuesday, but I can talk about some of it now because there's a lot to talk about it. But yeah, like actually one of the main themes of this entire book is reproduction, is basically like um, unnatural selection, one might call it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But then again, the whole concept of natural selection applied to humans is not good. <laughs> it's yeah. Yeah. If you've ever read like Darwin's The Descent of Man, it's yeah. you've got whole social Darwinism and all that kind of stuff. But also one can't really apply natural selection to humans because where does the concept of like of, of cultural intervention in infant mortality versus environmental intervention in infant mortality, where's that line drawn, right? Right, because like, you know, humans, we're, we're an interesting species. We do things like build spaceships and bridges and, and high rises, you know? We've been intervening in uh, infant mortality probably for a very, very, very long time. So where that line between natural selection and unnatural selection starts, it's, Okay. Jonathan, let's have the geneticist okay. come in. Yeah. 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 Okay. First off, culture and natural tends to amplify natural selection, not inhibited. That's generally what it's for. Oh, okay. What Darwin, in the sense of man, Darwin did not introduce social Darwinism. He didn't, that was not his idea at all. What he introduced was the idea of sexual selection. Where oh, females so, and males right. are competing to choose mates, right? In order to essentially um, accelerate the anticipated natural selection. Okay. So that's all point of sexual selection. You anticipate the natural selection in your environment, and you choose the mate who's already ahead of the game. So it's just mating strategy. It's just mating strategies. Yeah. The thing to do with infant yeah. mortality and, you know, making it through to be able to reproduce to the next generation. Well, I mean, that, that's really what they think of as natural selection. But, I mean, you want your children to survive. And if you can make a mate choice that improves that, you will do it. Right. Right. And, and that's very much a female thing. The thing that Darwin introduced was the idea that female choice is what drives the system. Right. And that males will do stupid and self-destructive things in order to feed the system. Correct. driven by female choice. Yeah. So that's, that's Darwin's major intervention, really, yeah. in biological thinking. Yeah. Um, that was Darwin. That was Darwin. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's what, what Darwin really contributed. Um, and the thing is, that I think the reason you see the honor of and so forth is that 
the dynamic that its natural selection creates is one in which males benefit by forming creating hierarchies because males are forced to compete with each other in in for um, for limited opportunities to access excessive numbers. And females don't have that opportunity and couldn't benefit from it if they did have it. Like it doesn't help a woman to have too many husbands. Right? It doesn't increase the reproductive output. Okay. Uh, so the thing is, the result of that, at least in primates, and I think um, possibly in, in most species where, where this is the, the dynamic, is that the males have these hierarchies. Uh, in which there is broad equality within the layer of the high, each layer of the hierarchy, and females form what we sort of think of a pecking order, where they compete with each other much more and have much more vertical um, hierarchy, where there's very little equality. Right, right. fish stickers only work as a concept because they are essentially all sister wives to the god emperor. That's how they think of themselves. Okay, but it's but it's but absent that. They're, they're competing with other women for the most part. And I think that feeds back into the abortion debate dynamic because I think but men who men who want patriarchy will, will be against abortion. But the women, I think, are taking roles in that debate which depend critically on their own position and their yeah. own particular interests. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's a dynamic of Women who think they can be wise, wanting to impose these productive costs on competitors. So women who think they, that they're not never going to get pregnant without wanting to are happy to see their competitors knocked out of the game by early pregnancy by, with other men. That's interesting. Um, they want they want you know the risk of, of adultery to be high so that their men are more faithful. Right, women who think of themselves as unattached and young and have opportunities are yep. either going to be again for abortion rights if they want to use that freedom to social crime. They're going to be against abortion rights if they're basically where they want and are just anxious to have children and don't want men to restrict their ability to have children. Right, so upper class women will probably favor restrictions on abortion. Lower class women will not, and as women get older and become postmenopausal, again, they're in a position of defending the patriarchy they're devoted to because they're now out of out of the game. So they have no personal stake in what the law is at all. They become also collaborators with the patriarchy. That's that's why you have this split in, in the female community that women don't have this natural class um, solidarity that men men do because our evolutionary history does not promote it. That's interesting. And have all kinds of adaptations for forming yeah. for collaboration that, that don't benefit women. <laughs> right. That's interesting. That's interesting. But I do think that like from an evolutionary perspective that women do collaborate. They just don't collaborate in the ways that males collaborate. Mm. You know, if you look at if you look at the concept of menopause, you know, among like, you know, as like like as a as a species adaptation, um, you know, like the like you know, the extension of like the human life and menopause where females, like you see menopause in bonobos, right? You see it, you do see it in like in, 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 in other species of, of, of primates other than us. 
and it's it is an adaptive it's actually an adaptive strategy it is an adaptive yeah, yeah, strategy because it allows females it allows more more females to um to help out with 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 child rearing right and and yeah yeah and, yeah. and bonobo societies tend to be matriarchy is the thing yes yeah well, and uh, yeah, the thing is that we can't look at a major, they're not like, well, we have to define matriarchy because a lot of people, when they hear the term matriarchy, they just think like patriarchy, but only with women in charge. And it's not like that. Like it, like an actual sort of like matriarchy that resembles like a patriarchy, you know, like where, like where women are like both in charge and like, like kind of violently oppressing the males. Lemurs. Lemurs are really good, a really good example of that. Have you ever seen lemur behavior? Have you ever watched any lemur um, behavior? I, I have not. I have not. I've, I've mostly looked at the higher points. You, you should, because it's actually pretty hilarious. Female lemurs tend to be larger, and when they, when they feed, they feed themselves and their children, and then they some of them, because I've watched hours and hours of primate behavior, unfortunately, um, uh, then they, they, they tend to throw the discards at the males. It's, it's fun. I just laugh. I just laugh because it's like, a, it's a role reversal, you know, but. Okay. Well, I think, I think bonobos can wind up in something close to that. Certainly the, the dominant females tend to favor their own offspring and tend to prevent male control. Oh, for sure. Dominant females. The way that yes. Among bonobos, dominant females will definitely police um, uh, uh, less, less higher status males for sure. I've seen that as well. That happens. That yeah. happens among many primate species. That happens among uh, baboons. You know, large troop baboons, where you have more um, social stratigraphy just because of the size of the group. Yep. And you know what's funny is that the uh, the more uh, regular the food source is, the stronger the social stratigraphy is. You you would think that it would go in the opposite direction, but it actually it actually strengthens. It actually becomes far more um, gentrified. But anyways, it's it's almost seven o'clock. Well, that's what happens with humans. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. That's what happens with humans too. Because, you know, more food means more people and more people means more places that those people have to be in. So you've got more structure and the pyramid just gets taller and taller. Agreed. Agreed, agreed. Well, it's almost seven o'clock, guys. Does anyone have any questions for me about the content or anything? Actually, I did have a question, but I should leave. <laughs> well, uh, I was wondering if you had any sort of commentary on the role of women among the Fremen. And yes. um, because I, I was thinking about that the other day, um, I don't know if there are any sieges that are led by women. Does that happen? Because I don't remember. I know they're, they have the Reverend Mothers, they have the, um, the yes, yeah. so women do play important roles, but at the same time, um, I remember, for example, uh, Hara, um, yeah. Mrs. Um, wife, she, I, I remember when, when Paul meets her, I think Stilgar says something like, uh, she can become either your wife or your servant. Or your servant, yes. Yes, and she has like a, um, a period of time in which she can decide if she wants to uh, be freed of, of, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm wrong, but there, there was something about uh, choosing whether to stay with Paul or moving 
forward or um, yep. marrying another man? Well, the I think I think the tradition in the tribe is that if you best a man, um, you have a choice to take on his his woman as either an, a second or a third or like a, a, another wife or as a servant. And then I think there was a time period like after a year or something like that, that where the woman has a choice to move on from the position that she has been chosen to be put into. Because remember, Hera actually, um, Hera actually marries, I think she marries Stilgar. I think she becomes one of yeah. Stilgar's wives, right? She and mentions she, it, yeah. She makes that decision. And both she and the other wife, they mm -hmm. talk, right? And they talk about how they, they've talked about it and how they're both, and they're both okay with it, right? Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, I guess that's, that, that is, that is patriarchal, I would say, I would say, but um, that, that's such a small society, like that it's, so it's not as much of a, a as institutional patriarchy, because it's such a small society, and because right. it's, it's, like, instead of, like, these, um, you know, these, these, these stacked gender binary relationships where there's like, you know, like, like a stronger and a weaker, it's more of a gender complementarity. Mm -hmm. I think I mentioned it earlier. Just let me check my notes. Sorry, there was a, um, I, I, I had some problems with my Wi-Fi, so oh, that's okay. I, maybe I missed some, okay. some I other did, things you said. Um, I did actually, I did talk about Fremen women because- um, I'm sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> It's, it's, I didn't really talk that long. I literally just quoted something from the Dune book. If you want, it's on, on my page. It's 386. So it's at the siege is a lonely place without our men. It's, oh, a, right. yeah. it's a place of work, right? So they work in the factories. They work in potting rooms. They make weapons. Mm. So the, like the, the women of the Fremen make the weapons. I mean, if there's one thing that like that, like anthropologically, um, in you know, in a lot of human like like human cultures, uh, women uh, have been you know like like not only touching weapons or even looking at weapons or going near weapons. Um, that has been you know you can't do it right. Like you know like for whatever reason you're getting a period or you're polluted or whatever reason you can't go near the weapon. I mean among among the Sami lap of um, you know of, of northern uh, Scandinavia. Traditionally, women can't even step over the reins of the um, the reindeer, like like the because because they're polluted because they get their period they're 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 polluted they can't even step over because they'll bring bad luck onto it. So you know these fremen women like they may we, we may they may sound like they're that they're you know kind of oppressed but you know they they basically run the entire like economic engine of the siege right actually tani does um go with them with the, the rest of the men on the razzias and right. yeah so i just wish there were more chinese <laughs> because i really liked having you know her example and that presence of a woman who's behaving like an equal and doing the same things that men do I think Chani, Even as a child. Yes. I think she's exceptional because, you know, she is the daughter of Liet Kynes. Mm. Yeah, right? that, that's what I was thinking. If that was 
due to her status of you know being Stilgar's niece or yeah I yeah I think she's pretty high up in like the you know whatever Fremen hierarchy that there is I think Johnny is pretty high up in in the Fremen mm -hmm. hierarchy but like look at Shiana right Shiana's yeah. she is Shiana's kind of like a Chani right Shiana goes out she does all she you know she runs uh, you know she's at eight years old she's she's running around her village you know going to the water collectors you know so um and and at, at eight years old she loses her entire family and has to go live with the priests yeah. and and within four years she has them all wrapped around her little finger you know <laughs> like I love Shiana I think she's I think she's a great character I mean they Frank does some some odd cringe things with her in, in Chapter House, which yeah, I wish I could forget those. Yeah, I wish I could forget that. I just wish I could take that entire page and just whip it out and go, it never happened. <laughs> I didn't I expect that. I Me mean, neither. I didn't, didn't. I didn't expect that either. I don't. It, yeah, that was, wasn't good. But you know, it can't, it can't all be perfect. <laughs> Yeah, there are some moments in all the books. I remember when I first read um, about Alia and how uh, Leto confronts her at the end of uh, Children of Dune. That was a very weird uh, moment. I mean, reading that felt weird. I don't know why. Like the description of how he kills her and how she, I think she she ends up falling off a window. Yeah. Or, but that whole moment was very strange. And, and it's like, there's some beautiful, beautifully written scenes in, in the whole books. And then you have very weird moments, like. Yes, <laughs> then you have some very weird moments. Yes, there's another one in um, Heretics of Dune where he, he there's like, it's like a, a side um, sentence where he, where he has to, he describes Duncan Idaho's loins. I'm just like, what? Yeah, right. <laughs> right? Like, what? Yeah. Fact, you know what? When you look at when you look at the later books, when Beverly, you know, when Beverly was sick, right? Because she was sick for about 10 years before she passed, mm -hmm. right? She passed mm -hmm. in 1984. You can you can really see, you can almost you can and you can tell from Chapter House for sure that Beverly was not around to help him. <laughs> You can tell. You can like, whoa, Beverly would have been like, yeah, rip that page out of the book. You don't put that in there. <laughs> so the moral it's still a good book. book. It's still a good book. It's a very good book. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So all right, we're 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 coming up on 705, guys. Um, folks. Uh, don't we're trying to be gender neutral. Um, I say guys because I've been saying guys since I was like I know what you meant. Six, you know. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, the term guys is now has entered the gender neutral category. As far as I'm concerned, like when used in certain contexts. Yes. Yeah. 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 I was actually wondering about that because I I wasn't sure. I mean, when I'm using it in English, I I didn't know if I could use it for you know, as a neutral word, or if it only meant guys as in male guys? <laughs> I, I would say that you can definitely use guys as a neutral um, group term, like non-gender neutral group term. Some people would disagree with me nowadays, but some people find fault in everything. So that's true. <laughs> some people would say, oh, use folks, because folks doesn't refer to anyone's gender. And I'm just like, you know, and then some terms 
just become gender neutral, like the term asshole. I personally think the term asshole, that both men and women can now equally be assholes because of, you know, like, you know, it's not just a man thing. <laughs> Sorry, part of my language. You know, it's being recorded, right? Yep, I do. And it's going to be broadcast as well. <laughs> I have been very, very good watching my language during this entire series because I can sometimes occasionally suffer from a bit of potty mouth. So we need to come back and have another class that's not recorded and hear the real truth? Yeah, give me like two beers as well. And then it's like beep, 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 beep. <laughs> you just put your finger on the buzzer the entire time, just beeping me out. Yeah, so anyways. Okay, guys, Tuesday. Tuesday is our last class. Thank you so much for sticking with me during this time. Like, weren't we supposed to end like a month ago? Three weeks ago. <laughs> Yeah, thank, thank you for you sticking with us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you. Too. Oh, I really, really, and in fact, um, I don't know if I told you guys this, but uh, Kara and I are talking about putting together a podcast. So um, maybe down the line, um, you know, you might be able to hear me and Kara discussing like crazy Dune stuff, even more crazy Dune stuff forever and ever and ever. We have lots of great ideas and we, we talk, we, we can talk for like three and a half hours on this stuff. So, so uh, yeah. Oh, and last question before I go, I know it's 708, I know I'm pushing past. Would anyone, okay, so the movie, the, the, the Denis Villeneuve version of Dune is coming out October 22nd. Would anyone be interested in doing a movie night, like an online Zoom movie night to watch the original Dune and both you know, like, you know, comment along with like, like your favorite phrases and also <laughs> throw popcorn at the screen at all the cringe. Would anyone be interested in doing that? That's Actually, cool. I, I've never watched that one. <laughs> so, oh. I, because I was afraid to. <laughs> well, it's, been... it's good that you read the books first. I'm glad. Yeah. You yeah that's what i wanted to do i did start watching the uh miniseries from sci-fi yeah <laughs> i've watched one episode but it's so maybe <laughs> it's definitely different it is yeah. yeah yeah definitely but yeah no the original movie has got it's got like the classics right like you know god created arrakis to train the faithful that is nowhere in the book, but it there's is also a pug. There's what? There's a pug, a dog. Like I, I read something about a dog. There, there are some memes about a pug with Gurney. Oh yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I think there's like there's there's a set of like family dogs. I think there is yeah, and like all of the Harkonnens have red hair. So like, you know, and I and I I, I think that's to. To sort of, um, I think that's like a like a, a motif uh, where they don't explicitly say that Jessica is a Harkonnen, but you know Jessica's mm -hmm. got red hair. The Harkonnens <laughs> have red hair. No one else has red hair. Put two and two together, you know. So Liesel has red hair. Oh. I do have red hair. <laughs> 
I do. I, and that's another reason I love these books is that there's so many gingers. There's gingers everywhere. And usually when gingers are in books, they're like either evil or they're witches or they're like, you know, like marginally not very intelligent, right? They're mm -hmm. So yeah, it's kind of nice to see a book filled with gingers. It's nice that 10,000 years in the future, there will still be redheads. Yeah. Well, let, me know if you do, let me know if you do the movie night. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to talk to Stuart and because I would I would love to watch, love to watch it with you guys. Has has anyone um, has any of you watched the Yadorovsky uh, documentary? Oh, I wouldn't because mind. I, I couldn't find it. Yeah, I think I think Stuart has a line on a pirated copy of it. Shh, I didn't say that. We're, <laughs> we're going to delete this part from from the um, when when we publish it. Um, but I think Stuart can get a pirated copy. So do you guys want to do like a movie? Do you guys want to watch that instead? Yeah. Uh, or both? I mean, oh, both, both would be fine. Okay, we'll do both. Okay, we'll do both. I will talk to Stuart about getting some Zoom time. And then um, like the, this would be no charge, right? This is just like a one night, like sit around mm -hmm. and eat popcorn and watch a movie, right? And, <laughs> and like, I just know I can't do it that opening weekend of the movie. That no, of course not. Up. I wouldn't make but, you. I, I wouldn't make you choose. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have other things going on that week, and I couldn't oh. do it those nights. Oh, okay. Was, okay. That's what I was just saying. I, that Friday and Saturday night, I have things already going. Okay. Okay. Well, I was thinking of doing it before that weekend, so like we can all. But if the new, but if the new oh, the old Dune movie. Old Dune. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Now I understand. Yeah. yeah before that weekend and then okay. hopefully that weekend I'll be in a movie theater eating popcorn. I know. With like my like, me too. Yeah, with like my three tickets and just sitting in the same seat and they can keep coming down, ma'am, you have to leave. Nope, I got my other ticket. Gonna watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, okay, awesome. I'll talk to Stuart. Um, but I'll see everyone on Tuesday. Yes. For our last class. Okay. Have a great weekend. It's supposed, to get up to high. it's supposed to get up to a high of 21 degrees here this weekend. Yay. Yay. <laughs> so my unworking, I won't have to get my still suit fixed. Okay. Okay. See you guys Tuesday. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.